Well, good morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn along with me to Matthew chapter 6. As we continue our study of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gave us a model prayer, a prayer which should serve for us as a kind of guide and template, not one that we are required to pray through slavishly, but one that generally points us in the right direction of what kind of heart attitude to take and where to begin in prayer and where to move on from there. We've seen that Jesus taught us to pray this way, our Father, teaching us that we can come near to God and without fear of God. And yet, He taught us that our Father is the one who is in heaven. That we can come near with boldness, but never with brashness. Hallowed be your name, he taught us. That we seek God's honor and glory and make that our first concern and the subject of our very first petition. Next, Jesus instructed us that we're to pray, your kingdom come. That the current rebellion against God would be put down, and that God's rule would be firmly established in the world, one heart and one life at a time, beginning with us. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that God's will would be understood and obeyed just as it is in heaven. And in this sense, as we saw, we are praying for heaven on earth. Give us this day our daily bread, the first petition that we make for ourselves. Three petitions that have come before it have been focused on God and His glory and His kingdom and His will. Now we move on to our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. A prayer acknowledging our complete and utter dependence upon the Lord for all things, including our physical needs. This morning we come to the fifth of these six petitions that Jesus chose to include in this model prayer for us, this fifth petition suddenly gets very personal and very transparent. For in this fifth petition, Jesus teaches us to pray this way, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So let me remind you of this prayer by reading it for us again, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. I'll read it once more. Pray then this way, Jesus says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, But deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Indeed, let us go before the Lord. Our Father, we thank you that you hear our prayer. As a father who is eager to hear the the prayers and requests of his children, Lord, you are eager to hear ours. We thank you that you love us with an everlasting love that your compassion and your mercy know no bounds for us, that with you there is faithfulness and mercy that is fresh every morning. We thank you for your faithfulness. 
We thank you for your faithfulness, especially in light of our faithlessness. Lord, so often we are prone to doubt and prone to wander. And yet, Lord, you are there and ready to receive us again and forgive us of all of our trespasses and sins. Lord, I pray that you teach us today about your limitless compassion and unfailing forgiveness. Lord, grow us in an eagerness to run to you with confession of sin and requests for forgiveness. Even, Lord, as you build in us and grow in us increasingly a heart of forgiveness for others. Help us to forgive others. Help us to consider our sin in light of your holiness that is not graded on a curve. Lord, help us to see our sin for what it is and in that light, see the sins of others that they've committed against us as being far less. Help us to forgive even as we are forgiven. Lord, teach us this morning from your word and from this great prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to see four lessons we can learn from this prayer for forgiveness. Four lessons from this prayer for forgiveness that we can learn. The first lesson is that food is not our only necessity in life. We need more than food to flourish as human beings. We need more than shelter. We need more than clothing. We need more than a job. We need more than relationship with others. These are all needs that we have, to be sure. God made us as incarnated creatures that have needs like food and shelter and clothing and relationships with others. But this is not all we need. As we saw last week, Jesus encourages us to pray for our daily needs. These daily needs are summed up and represented represented by the prayer for daily bread. God is the great giver of all things. He gives us life and breath and all things. And without his kind and gracious provision, we would have nothing. And we would cease to be. We would cease to exist. We would die without his giving hand. And so Jesus encourages us here to pray for our daily needs, praying for provision of food, clothing, housing, employment, physical healing, physical well-being, and a host of other practical needs and desires. And these are not only permissible things to ask for, but they are good and right to ask for. It's not unspiritual to pray for such physical needs. To pray for such things is an acknowledgement that God is the provider of all these things and that without food, clothing, and shelter and the like, we're not likely to live long on this earth. Without bread, there would be no life. So we pray, Father, give us this day our daily bread. And yet, bread is not all we need. Nor is bread our greatest need. Physical needs are real and foundational to our human existence. Yes, that's true. 
But they are, in fact, not our greatest need. Not our, even our priority need. Having prayed for our physical needs, we must then move on to our spiritual needs. Bread is just as necessary to the body as forgiveness is to the soul. That's what Jesus teaches us here. Bread is just as necessary to the body as forgiveness is to the soul. Jesus demonstrates this by linking the prayer for our physical need in verse 11 with the prayer for our spiritual need in verse 12. And he does so with a conjunction, and. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. We need both. As needful as physical needs are, our spiritual needs, however, are of greater importance, for they are not merely for time, but for all eternity. Bread will get you through the day. Forgiveness will get you through eternity. Just a few chapters earlier, in Matthew chapter 4, you can turn there. It's not very hard to do. Just flip a page probably in your Bible or two. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is in the desert. You remember that, the tempting of Jesus, the testing of Jesus, and he he went without food. He fasted for 40 days. Anybody here gone 40 days without food? I haven't. I can't imagine. It says that Jesus was hungry. I would expect. No doubt. Satan came and he tempted Jesus three times. And it's interesting, the first way Jesus was tempted by Satan was with food. Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, Jesus, if you are the Son of God... Or since you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Make some bread, Jesus. Turn these stones into bread and fill your stomach. But Jesus answered and said, verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Satan was tempting Jesus to displace his trust in God the Father by using his divine power as the Son of God to selfishly satisfy his own hunger. This Jesus would not do. And in resisting the devil's temptation, Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God is reteaching the Israelites of their dependence upon him. How he has supplied for their every need and he supplied for it miraculously in those 40 years of wilderness wanderings as he supplied for them daily bread through the miraculous appearance of manna in the desert. And this is what God says, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 
He humbled you and let you be hungry. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. We live by bread, to be sure, but not by bread alone. Our lives are not merely the sum and substance of our physical realities. Yes, we are flesh and blood. We are incarnated beings. But we are also soul and spirit. Yes, we are material creatures made out of the dust, to be sure. But we are also spiritual creatures in whom God breathed the breath of life and into whom we have been made after his image. Therefore, we are spiritual creatures created specially to commune and fellowship with our creator God. We are physical beings and we are spiritual beings. We're not just Physical creatures with physical needs, we are also spiritual creatures with spiritual needs. And while our physical needs are basic to life, they are of lesser importance because they are merely temporal in nature. Of far greater importance is the meeting of our spiritual needs, for our spiritual needs are eternal. There's a prevailing worldview today called materialism. That says that matter is all there is. If you went to public school, this is probably what you were taught. Matter is all there is. That we're all just collections of atoms randomly arranged and evolved in a rather fortunate way. Listen to these words from Carl Sagan. This is going back a little bit, but... Carl Sagan said this, We are the representatives of the cosmos. We are an example of what hydrogen atoms can do given 15 billion years of cosmic evolution. He goes on to say, I am a collection of water, calcium, and organic molecules called Carl Sagan. You are a collection of almost identical molecules with a different collective label. But is that all? Is there nothing in here but molecules? Some people find this idea somehow demeaning to human dignity. For myself, I find it elevating that our universe permits the evolution of molecular machines as intricate and subtle as we. We are molecular machines, however intricate and subtle we may be. We are merely material, physical beings. Or listen to this from Bertrand Russell, the British mathematician and philosopher. He says this, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave? 
That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. If you're not building your life, your vision, your worldview, your understanding of the way things are on unyielding despair, then you're clueless. Is that any way to build a life? Is that any way to look at the world through the lens of unyielding despair? This is the philosophy behind materialism and it is the philosophy driving most institutions of our day, the culture of our day. Matter is all there is and we are all destined for a Futile extinction. A philosophy and worldview built upon the firm foundation of an unyielding despair. Is it any wonder our secular materialistic culture is in trouble? If matter is all there is, then nothing really matters. Humans are not special. Good and evil are not eternal realities. But social conventions. You live, you die, and you cease to exist. And that's the end of the story. And that's all there is. But this is not reality. We have been created by God as both physical beings and spiritual beings. Beings. And Jesus makes this clear by teaching us to pray not only for our physical needs, but also for our spiritual needs. Food and other material provision are, are, not, only, are, are, are not the only needs we have in this life. And he makes this clear for us by joining a prayer for physical needs with a prayer for spiritual needs. Do you realize this morning that you have been created as not only a physical being, but a spiritual being too? And that your greatest need today is not for physical provision, but for spiritual provision. Are you looking to God to provide not only for your physical needs, but more importantly for your spiritual needs? So the first thing we can learn from this fifth petition is that food is not our only need, nor even our greatest need in life. Let's look at what else we can learn from this prayer for forgiveness. Secondly, our sin has caused a great spiritual indebtedness. We are spiritual beings, and from birth, we are spiritually indebted to the God who made us. Jesus says we are to pray, forgive us our debts. Jesus is teaching us here that we have debts. Not financial debts, but spiritual debts. 
Remember, we're praying to God our Father who is in heaven. The great God of all the earth. The God who is the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy. And our indebtedness is to Him. It's a spiritual indebtedness. This spiritual indebtedness is caused by our sin. Debt equals sin. Luke 11.4, the same prayer that Jesus taught on another occasion, Luke 11.4, there Jesus said, and forgive us our, not debts, but sins. Forgive us our sins. Here he says, debts in Matthew. It's the same thing. One looks to the cause of the debt, the other to the debt itself. As God's creatures, created in His image and for His glory, we owed God perfect obedience to do what He said, to live under His rule and reign. We have failed to do that. We have failed to give Him what He is owed, and therefore our sins and disobedience have left us indebted to Him. And the failure to fully pay this debt results the Bible says, in our death. Death has come up all over the world. Death has invaded the world. Death has come because of our sin and because of our debt. debt is, this debt and this physical death that results is also joined by spiritual death. Eternal suffering in hell. That is the second death. But God in his mercy has provided all that is necessary for the payment of our debt. He's provided this through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly, who lived sinlessly, who lived as we were supposed to live, but didn't and can't. He lived perfectly so that he could die in our place and pay our debt to God. We studied Colossians together. Let me read to you Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Paul says there, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it, to the cross. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the debt that you owed God, that infinite death, debt that you could never pay back, that debt that was hanging over you, that was going to result in the wrath of God being poured out on you for all eternity, that debt, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, is moved out of the way. It is paid in full. Through our sin and disobedience, we accumulated this mountain of spiritual debt that we could never possibly pay back. But God has graciously paid our debt for us through his son's sacrifice. And he gives us eternal life as a free gift. And as we all know, gifts can't be earned or deserved. As Paul says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Our sin has caused a great spiritual indebtedness and a great spiritual rift between us and God, our creator. And it's going to result in a great spiritual judgment. A debt owed to God. And there's nothing that we can do on our own to pay that debt. Did you know that your sins have put you in such a predicament of spiritual debt, spiritual indebtedness to God? And you will pay this debt for all eternity unless someone else pays it for you, someone qualified, someone able. The bad news is, without someone else stepping in and paying this debt on your behalf, you will pay it yourself for all eternity. That's the bad news. But there's good news too. And that brings us to the third lesson. God graciously forgives us this indebtedness when we ask for it. Jesus instructs us to pray, forgive us our debts. The truth of the gospel is that when we ask God to forgive us on the basis of his son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, he indeed forgives us. The word forgive means to send away, to dismiss. Our sins are dismissed like a judge declaring a case dismissed. Our sins, our guilt, our debt are forgiven. They are sent away, far away. Proverbs, or Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgression from us. How far is the east from the west? Infinitely far. Infinitely far. In other words, they're not around anymore. They're gone. They're paid for. God does this forgiving initially for us by justifying us. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God justifies us. He declares us to be righteous in his sight. Removing all our spiritual debt and imputing the very righteousness of Christ to our accounts. But even as Christians, we continue to struggle with sin. Even as justified Christians, we continue to struggle with sin, and the sin grieves the Lord. But even then, God forgives us whenever we ask for it. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Asking God to forgive us our sins is the believer's recognition that we continue to struggle with sin, that we're not okay with it, and we know that God's not okay with it. We confess sin, turning from it, and turning to the grace and power of God that has freed us once and for all from sin's guilt and sin's ruling power. To confess our sins to God and ask for his forgiveness is to take ourselves back to the gospel daily. Back to the gospel truth that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, 
Confess your sins to the Lord and he will forgive you. If you're here today and you're not sure that your sins are forgiven, you're not sure that you're a Christian, you're not sure you have eternal life, then I say to you, confess your sins to God and ask him to forgive you on the basis of his son's sacrifice and he will forgive you. That infinite debt that you can't possibly pay back, that infinite debt that can't be paid back with a lifetime of service and good deeds and church attendance and religious observances, that debt that can't be paid by you has been paid fully by Jesus Christ and it can be appropriated to your account, your spiritual account, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Why would you wait another moment? Why would you wait another day? Why would you play the odds and hope that maybe you can live a little more life before coming to God and coming clean with your sins? You're not promised tomorrow. You and I aren't promised the next moment. Today is the day of salvation. Confess and be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That brings us to the fourth and final lesson. God's gracious forgiveness produces in us a spirit of forgiveness. It produces in us a spirit of forgiveness. Jesus says we're to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, some have thought that this clause at the end makes forgiveness of our sins entirely conditional on our forgiving others. Forgive us our debts on the condition that we have already forgiven our debtors. But this is too transactional. This is like saying, Lord, I've done my part in forgiving others. Now you have to do your part in forgiving me. But that's contrary to the gospel, everything we know about the gospel. And it's not in keeping with what the text actually says. No, this is not placing a condition upon the answer to the prayer, but rather it is stating the precondition of the one praying. As we approach God as forgiven people, understanding that he is now our Father, even though he is the one who is in heaven, who rules over all, who is holy, 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 we approach him knowing we've been forgiven. We approach him having forgiven others already. We've already done it before we've gotten to prayer. So it's not a condition of answered prayer. It's a precondition of the one praying. The one praying comes in prayer having already forgiven those who've wronged him. How could we do otherwise? How could a sinner like me who has infinitely offended the holy God of heaven have the temerity to approach God, address him as father, understanding that he's forgiven an infinite spiritual debt of mine, all the while harboring unforgiveness and bitterness and anger and resentment in my heart against those who've offended me on a scale that pales in comparison to the way I've offended God. Why would I do that? 
Surely no one would do that, would they? Well, turn with me to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Jesus shares a parable about just this kind of thing that really helps it to bring it in focus, what we're talking about here. Matthew 18, 23. Jesus says, Matthew 18, 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Okay, so Jesus is telling a story here about a king and his slaves. He's doing it to teach us a lesson. When he had begun to settle these accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, 10,000 talents, what is that? It is a vast, vast sum. Some have argued that it's tantamount to several billion dollars of debt. It's, the point is not so much the amount. It's an incomprehensible amount. It's an impossible amount to pay back of any one individual. Can't be done. Verse 25. But since he did not have the means to pay, yeah, no kidding. And everyone hearing that would have been like, yeah, nobody has that much money. Since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, and he released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, one denarii is a day's wage. So this is about three months' pay. A far cry from what he owed, right? And he seized him, and he began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me. I will repay you. But he was unwilling, and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning his his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Do you see the lesson? When we realize how much we've been forgiven, that makes our forgiving others far lesser sins than we've committed against God so much easier. The person who's truly been forgiven much forgives much. And friends, we've been forgiven an infinite debt. How could we possibly not forgive others who've sinned against us in far lesser ways? We have a tendency to minimize the significance of our own sin, 
even while we magnify the significance of sins done against us. And the key to this is humbling ourselves and rightly understanding the enormity of our own sin and guilt and the radical enormity of the forgiveness that has been granted to us. Then we'll be able to see more clearly to forgive those who have wronged us in far less ways. I love what John Stott says. He says, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. If you think the sins done against you are far greater than any sins you've ever committed against the Lord. Right out of the starting blocks, you've missed it. You've stumbled. So Jesus, in saying we should pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us, is saying that this is what true Christians do. It's just a fact. Forgive us even as we forgive others. Because we understand these are economies of scale. There's no comparison to the sins we've committed against God when it comes to the sins that others have committed against us. This is just what Christians do. They forgive. They forgive others before they ever seek forgiveness, even for their own sins. I like what Kevin DeYoung tweeted out just this week. He said, those who have received the grace of Christ will show in themselves something of the grace of Christ. That's just what Jesus is getting at when just a few verses later, back here in Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Why? Because you're not really a Christian. Christians understand the need to first forgive others of their debts before coming into God's presence and seeking His forgiveness of their greater debts. We who have been forgiven all are able to, in turn, forgive others. So if you find yourself simply unable and unwilling to forgive the sins of others against you, it might be wise to consider if indeed God has indeed forgiven you. If you're indeed a Christian. Now I know that's hard. And it may be difficult to receive. But that's what the Bible teaches us. Forgiveness is a mark of all true Christians. Colossians 3.13, bear with one another and forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Again, our forgiveness of others is rooted in God's forgiveness of us. We cannot do otherwise. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. 
As Christians, we will at times struggle to forgive. And it may take us some time and concerted effort and prayer for help on our part to do so. But in the end, the Christian will indeed forgive others because the Christian has indeed been forgiven far, far more. As bread is to the body, so God's forgiveness is to the soul. And God grants forgiveness graciously to us when we ask for it in repentance and faith. Thanks be to God for his gracious forgiveness. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are such a gracious Father. You forgive, and you forgive, and you forgive, and you forgive again. Thank you that the well of your forgiveness is infinitely deep from which we can draw. And Jesus here encourages us, pray this way. Father, forgive us. Forgive us our debts, even as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Lord, grow in us a spirit of forgiveness that is quick to forgive the sins of others. Even, Lord, as you are quick to forgive our sins which are far greater. Thank you that we can have peace with God, our Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for paying that infinite debt that we could never pay back on our own, that we would spend an eternity paying back through suffering and experiencing the the wrath of God, the just wrath of God against sin. Thank you, Jesus, for paying that fully and for taking that debt out of the way, canceling it, canceling it out at the cross. We're forever grateful. And may we demonstrate that forgiveness, that gratefulness for forgiveness by forgiving others, we ask. All these things in Jesus' name, amen.